You have to let them be right, even if you don't agree with them. And that lets the situation kind of work out a little bit. But for me, dude, I'm not a therapist. I'm not here to solve people's life problems. I'm here to help them build a business and I'm help, here to help them, you know, get seen and heard in the right way. And if they're game for that and we're, you know, talking about the same reality here, then we can make it happen, man. How is it going, ladies and gentlemen? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you back to The Way of the Wolf. Our guest today is a gentleman named Jeremy Slate. Man, this is going to be a great conversation. Jeremy is the founder of Create Your Own Life podcast that interviews high-performing individuals from around the world. He studied at Oxford, champion powerlifter, and now a media entrepreneur and author and founder of Command Your Brand. Jeremy, welcome to The Way of the Wolf. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, stoked to hang out today, man. All right, good deal. So there is a lot of alignment in everything that I've seen about you so far and everything that I've done in my career. I am actually a newly minted entrepreneur myself. Just mm. this week, I'm officially out on my own. So I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. I want to talk a little bit about how you started and grew your business during the pandemic by a pretty substantial amount because that had to have been scary as can be to try to start something when the world was shutting down. So before we dive into that, can you tell me what drives you to do the things that you do? That's a tough one, man, because I, I look at it and, and for me, you know, I want to help other people be the best at what they can do. And you know what I mean? Like, I'm not here to give anybody a life preserver. I'm here to take people that are already good at what they do and help them be better and, you know, be able to make a bigger impact and things like that. But for me, I'm, I'm not about throwing people a life preserver. I'm, I'm here to help, you know, make the able more able. Oh, man. Okay. I can quite frankly respect the hell out of that. So there, there is a lot to that. Whenever I work with people, one of the things that's almost a prerequisite is they have to be able to put in the work. And there mm -hmm. has to be some foundational skill set, talent, tenacity, grit, and drive that's going to move them to that next level. And the way I like to think of it is people like yourself, we can kind of shine a light down a hallway and say, hey, here's a path that will likely end in success for you, but you have to walk that path. I'm not going to just sit and pat, pat you on the back and pretend like everything's all unicorns and rainbows. Have you always been like that? Um... I don't know if I've always been like that, but I, I think it's something that life has also made me into that as well. Um, you know, I started uh, weightlifting at like 16, 17 years old. And I think for me, that was a big part of, you know, what helped my mindset. But I think life's also taught me a lot of that, too, because I did the path I thought I was supposed to do. I was a high school teacher for a couple of years, absolutely miserable in that. And I went through a bunch of different careers until I figured out, you know, what was really going to work for me. I started a podcast as a hobby. It took off and it allowed me to do a lot of things I'm doing now. And I think one of the things that you realize is, and I don't want to sound like I'm a total jerk on this man, but I feel like there's, there's, there's several different types of people in the world. There's people that are willing to do the work. They're willing to work through things. You know, they may have been given things. They may not have been given things and that's fine. And they're going to figure it out. There are other people that nine out of 10 things could work out for them. That one thing doesn't work out. And because of that, they fail and it's never going to work out and they're going to drag you down with them. There's just, I, uh, did you know what I mean? There, there's people that are very like good and social and there's people that just really aren't. 
And if you attach yourself to them, it's going to, it's going to put you in a bad position. So for me, I early on attached myself to a lot of people that really weren't good for me. And it doesn't mean like they were criminals or anything like that. It just means these were people that if those nine of 10 things didn't go right for them, it wasn't going to work out. And you find that a lot of things in your own life go wrong and don't work out when you attach yourself to the wrong type of people. So it's realizing, you know, like, Hey, that's fine. They're going to do what they're going to do. But if I want to do well in my life, I have to attach myself to these other people that are also going to do well, work hard, work through things and, and, and make things happen. Does that make sense? Or is that kind of sound it, a little crazy? Yeah, man, it completely resonates with me. And something that I have had to learn how to do in my own life. And I found it to be quite challenging because some of those people might be longtime friends that you grew up with. And you just came to this realization that your paths were starting to diverge. Mm-hmm. And you were pursuing and chasing greater things in life. And maybe they were happy and just complacent and kind of stalling out. Maybe they hit their ceiling. And it's not that you have to completely disown those people, but you need to be able to be aware of the effect that they have on you yes. and the influence that they can have on you and dragging you down and slowing you down and start attaching yourself to other people that are going to push you and drive you to accomplish those great things. But it is not easy at all, Mm -hmm. especially, and sometimes there are people that those people that are dragging them down are actually part of their family, which makes it extremely challenging. And again, you don't have to disown them, but creating a little bit of distance can be quite healthy and help you move in the direction that you want to move. Yeah, and I've done that the wrong way too, Sean. Like, I'll be honest with you. Like, because I think often we see that, we observe that, and we handle it the wrong way where we create antagonism. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, we create a situation where instead of saying, okay, you're going to do your thing, I'm going to do my thing, and that's fine, and we'll kind of just do whatever, um, we create a situation where we make, need to make that person feel like we're very right and they're very wrong. And instead of just saying, hey, you know, I'll associate with that person, you know, as little as possible you create a situation where you create an enemy for yourself. And that's not fun either. And I've done that. And I've frankly went back and handled a lot of those situations because there's no reason to create enemies for yourself. There's enough of them out there, man. Yeah. How did you go back and handle that situation? Um, you got to take a mea culpa, man. Like you got to, you got to come back and be like, you know, I said X, Y, Z. I'm sorry about that. Like I can see how that would make you upset. I can see how that would make you feel wrong. You know, I know you're going to do what you're going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But like, you know, I'm really sorry, dude. Like I'm, it's, I had one that was my best friend and, and I actually made the situation worse because that person wasn't supportive of me, you know, doing something different than what we always did. And rather than handling that in the right way of like, those are your goals. These are my goals. That's cool, dude. When we have time, we'll hang out. Otherwise I'm going to go do this. I made it about me and I made it a big situation and I created a blow up, which lasted a couple of years. Oh man, that's tough. Yeah. I've known a number of people that do that. And then they hold on to this grudge for far too long and man, it's yes. just life's too short for all of that. So I have to commend you on going back, having that difficult conversation, that crucial conversation to try to make amends. And and while you're probably not best friends or hang out all the time anymore, but at least that relationship is not in that degraded state that it once was when things went south. Yeah, because it's you're you're unnecessarily creating an enemy for yourself. Like you know, like we don't hang out all the time. We live in different states too, which actually helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's we can you know have a communication here or there, and, and you know things are okay as they need to be. But we're not hanging out every day. We're not talking every day. But at the same time, there's not that pushback of I've created an enemy out there for myself now. And I think we create so many of the situations we see ourselves in. And then we want to talk about how other people are hurting us. 
when very oftentimes, man, if you look in the mirror, you can find the source of a lot of your own problems. Oh, yeah. That accountability on oneself, taking ownership for your actions and what you did to contribute to any given situation. It's very easy for us to point our finger on, oh, well, look what Sally did to me. Look what Jason did to me. That's not fair and get mad and upset at them. When the reality is you probably did something to contribute to the way they reacted to you and taking mm -hmm. the time to reflect and look inwardly. It takes a lot of courage that not a, pe not a lot of people are prepared to do. We have responsibility and for everything we do in our life, and we don't do, frankly, as well. It's to act or not act, you have responsibility in that. And life can throw you some curveballs. It can throw you some terrible things. It can throw you some great things. But how you handle those things is going to be a big part of how you come out of them. You know, I've almost lost a parent when I was 24 years old, and, and my mom is still very permanently disabled. Like, I could have looked at that situation and said, you know, look what life has dealt me. But instead, I've looked at that and said, what can I do with this? I almost died at 19 from a surgery that didn't go well. You know, I could have looked at that and said, you know, poor me, whatever. But I looked at that and said, okay, what can I do from the situation? And what can I change my viewpoint on because of the situation? So it's at the same, at the same time, Sean, it's looking at how you're going to approach things is a, so much of the results you're going to create from it. Do you think that that mindset of how we look at things is something that is instilled in us during our formative years or is it something that occurs after some significant adversity that we face in our lives? Or What do you think contributes to people being able to have that mindset? I think it's both, frankly. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, It's probably a terrible answer to say that, but I think it's both. You're, you're a product of your environment and how you're raised, but also the life you live can also help to change that mindset, right? Like if you look at um, – Somebody like Tom Brady, I'm a, I'm a big football fan. You look at somebody like Tom Brady, and he barely starts his senior year of high school. He has to compete with Drew Henson his entire senior year at Michigan, gets drafted in the sixth round, and then becomes probably one of the best quarterbacks to ever live. But he learned how to study harder, work harder, do all these things harder. That's something you have to create, man. Somebody doesn't give that to you. Do you get what I'm saying? Like You have to create that and be willing to work through that. And I think there's often a lot of even people I've interviewed, like life deals them a bad hand and ostensibly they should live a terrible life because life dealt them a bad hand. But at the same time, you look at that experience and what you can learn from it. So I think it's hard to say if it's kind of nature versus nurture. I think it really is both. There's what you're born with and then there's also what you do about it, right? Like there, there's a lot to be said about that. When you work with people, do you encounter... Some customers that might come to you and say, Jeremy, this is my business. This is what I'm trying to focus on and build. And in your initial assessment of the individual, maybe not their business, but the individual itself, come to realize that maybe they operate in this negative, dark, pessimistic place. And then when you recognize that, how do you proceed? Do you try to work them through it? Or do you step back and say, hey, I'm seeing this, this and this, maybe focus on this stuff first, and then come back and see me whenever you're ready? It's more of the second, frankly, because I think that the thing you have to realize is, dude, I'm running a business here. I'm not a therapist. You know what I mean? So it's like, I can't, I, I can't change people, right? Like, I, it's, I'm not here to sit down in, in a chair and talk about your problems. So at the same time, you have to figure out how to handle that situation where you're making that other person right and not making them wrong. Like 
Um, I'll give you an example of a client that we stopped working with in February of this year. And he was telling me some things he observed at his process that he thought he could do better himself. And I'm like, you know what, dude, you are totally right. I think it actually would be a great idea if you did it yourself. So let's do this. Let's stop charging you for the program. And then, you know, once things work out and, you know, you've got it to a place you want to do it, you can come back and you can talk to us. You can't make people wrong because it escalates situations and makes them worse. You have to let them be right, even if you don't agree with them. And that lets the situation kind of work out a little bit. But for me, dude, I'm not a therapist. I'm not here to solve people's life problems. I'm here to help them build a business and I'm help, here to help them, you know, get seen and heard in the right way. And if they're game for that and we're, you know, talking about the same reality here, then we can make it happen, man. But like for me... You have to figure out how to handle that conversation the right way because you don't want, once again, it goes back to what we talked about before. You don't want to create enemies and you don't want to piss people off. You want to figure out how can we make this work in a situation where everybody feels right about moving forward. Yeah, I like that. Let's talk a little bit about your book, From Unremarkable to Extraordinary. Tell me about it. So I've had, gosh, at this point, I think like 1,100 conversations or something like that on my podcast since I started in 2019. And when I looked at it, I think we're really essentially born ordinary people. And it's the things we do and the life experiences we have that make us extraordinary. That's why it's on the cover. It says extraordinary, right? Because we're all ordinary. It's what we do that makes us extra. And when I looked at it, there was really a few things that every single one of those people have in common. You know, one being their work ethic, two being how they treat adversity, how they lead others. So there was really these repeatable things I saw again and again and again that make people extraordinary. And it's, it's an active process, it's not a passive process, meaning nobody became extraordinary because other people did something for them. It's they kind of be the person to take the driver's seat in their life and actually do something about it. And it, it's been pretty incredible, the, the things I've learned from people over the years. I had a guest come on the show named Tony Watley. I've actually known him for over 20 years. Oh, no kidding. I, I spent the weekend with Tony two weeks ago. Really? Oh yes. man, that is so, okay. How, we're, we're in a mastermind where, together. Tony's the man. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Small world. So yeah, he's been on the guests uh, or a guest on the show before yeah. we train at the same gym. So we're always kind of running. Oh, so you're into in each Houston. Other. I was, I was in Dallas with him like two or three weeks ago. Okay. All right. <laughs> That is so funny. That's I actually wild, just had man. another guest on two weeks ago that knew Tony from a mastermind as well. That guy, he is phenomenal at networking. So the version Wait, so of- who's the other guest? I probably know him too. Uh, Jeff Brecken. Oh, I know Jeff. Yeah. You know Jeff? Oh. I know Jeff. I spoke at one of Tony's events and I met Jeff there. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. That is absolutely incredible. The version, how long have you known Tony? Uh, so I've known Tony probably since 2017. He um, reached out to me when he was just starting his podcast because a buddy had connected us and said, hey, I know you've had a podcast for a little bit. Anything I should know. And him and I like had a call and whatever. And, you know, it was it was pretty cool. Tony's always been a good guy. Yeah, definitely. So the version of Tony that you know and that exists now is not the same version of Tony that I knew from from 20 years ago. He was okay. your typical introverted engineer, worked in oil and gas. Uh, very successful in the oil and gas arena, but your typical engineer. And whenever he had an incident that occurred in his life, which you're probably aware of, that the vehicle accident whenever he was racing his yeah. car, and it completely changed his life. And I find that interesting when he walked away from that wreck, he had this moment of how do I want to be remembered as 
when the time comes for me to move on? Do I want to be remembered as the guy that made a lot of money and had a bunch of cool cars, or do I want to be remembered for having some sort of meaningful, significant impact on the lives of the people around me? And so he started writing a book, started going to Toastmasters, started doing interviews, started building the 365 Driven Community, and that has just impressed the hell out of me, seeing someone go from that hardcore introvert to this guy who's out in on stages all the time, he's an author, interviewing, has his own podcast. It's phenomenal to see what we are capable of doing when that trigger event occurs in our lives. And so uh, like I admire people that come on the show and, and not all of the guests, but a number of the guests that have achieved great things inevitably had some sort of adversity in their life that triggered them to push to that next level and drive them to greatness. So that's, that's incredible. Well, I would say for me, it was, it was almost losing a parent. Like, uh, this is, this is back in 20, 2012 when my mom had a stroke, I was teaching high school. I was working with sophomores at that point in time, which you see how young I look now and I'm, I'm almost 37, man. So you can imagine what it was like when I was 24 and, you know, I had, had coworkers trying to give me the attention. So like, <laughs> But that experience, to me, it made me look at everything I was doing in my life, and I'm like, am I going to do this the rest of my life, and what kind of an impact am I making? And that's when I didn't really know what that thing was. Like To me, when I hear people tell these stories about like something happens to them, and the sky opens up, and they hear the, the angels playing, and they know what they're going to do the rest of their life, like, that really didn't happen for me. But I knew what I was doing wasn't the right thing. So I went through a process of doing all these different things. You know, I, I did network marketing. I sold life insurance. I built websites. I did online marketing. I did all these different things to figure out what worked for me. And frankly, it was when I went back to being a student by starting a podcast and learning from other people, that's when it actually worked out. So I think we have to find out what matches with our skills and our abilities and what we're actually interested in. And when you really match those couple things up and you're willing to work hard, I think from there you can do it. But I think at the same time, you do have to have something that is a, you know, a pattern interrupt. And I think that's going to be a little bit different for everybody. But for me, if that event didn't happen, I would probably be doing, doing very similar to what I was doing then and not being very happy doing it. So I think you're correct. You do need a pattern interrupt of some point, of some, some type. Yeah. That's interesting. I've talked a little bit on my show about the things that, that have driven me. And early on in my life, my biological father walked out on my mom and I, and that had an impact on me and kind of created this version of me that was just intrinsically driven to accomplish all these great things to try to prove something to somebody that was never really there. Yeah. And I went down this path of technology just because it came easy to me achieved some great things in my career, but it wasn't until my mid thirties when I recognized that I, w I had this, this yearning for something more and that I wasn't fulfilled. And there was an opportunity at the company that I worked for at the time to step in and start leading human resources, which was a <laughs> far cry different than information technology. That moment, and it, that moment in time changed the trajectory of my life because I started to recognize the importance of working with people and helping people achieve great things and how fulfilling that can be. And so mm. what it did is it kind of shifted my focus and passion and purpose in life from the technology 
over to the people and helping people grow and become a better version of themselves and helping build strong teams and cultures and things like that. And so while it wasn't this accident where I almost died or, or losing a member of the family, and, and obviously I've, I've lost members of my family, which were extremely challenging, but there wasn't one trigger event for me that set me down this path. It was almost mm -hmm. kind of like an evolution that occurred. And so it is interesting to, to your point, there's always some sort of trigger event and it could be an instant or something that occurs over a, a few months span of time where we just come to this realization, this isn't the path that I want to be on. I want to go, go down something else. Well, you know what's interesting about that, Sean, and this is something I actually write about in the first, the, the second chapter of the book, and it's when you look at it like when you look at adversity, there's no quantity of it, there's no quality of it. The only proof that it exists is to have experienced it, and it's also in the viewpoint of the person experiencing it, right? Like, I can't say what's adversity for you, and you can't say what's adversity for me, right? Because what's easy for me may be hard for you, and vice versa. And I think because of that. You know, it doesn't have to be something so extreme for one person. It just has to be the thing that wakes you up, right? That makes you look at there's something more that makes you take a look at this and say, like, is this it, man? Is this like all I'm going to do with my life? There just has to be something that wakes you up and makes you look. And frankly, I think for myself, I had to get shook a little bit harder to actually even wake up from that, right? I think so at the same time, you know, there is no quantity of it. There is no quality of it. But the only thing that is proof of adversity is to have experienced it. And in my opinion. Yeah. Let's talk about following your passion. From what I understand, you think that's a terrible idea. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> let's, well, because, let's dive into it. Well, and I think, I think like there's kind of like the whole coaching world and online marketing world and everything else that like, they just lie to people and they're like, so like, just find something you like and you'll never work a day in your life. And I'm going to tell you right now, can I cuss on your show? Yes. Okay, that is absolute bullshit um, because you'll never get anything you want in life without working your ass off, right? And I think when you, when you look at it, there's this idea of like following your passion, right? So you're like, you're chasing something you're never going to catch. I think you need to cha change the way you look at that a little bit and it's actually about finding your passion. That is an active process where you're searching and actually trying to find something. You're doing something, right? Like do some jobs you like, do some jobs you don't like do things and gain skills. So for me, like, you know, I worked for a house painter in college. I worked in construction. I did all these different things and I gained life skills and I gained an ability to, you know, feel good about what I was doing. I, I think for people to talk about um, self-esteem, you know, that's something you gain from actually doing and accomplishing and, and, and creating things. So to me, you need to, you need to actually work at things to find what you're good at. And then when you find what your skills, ability, and things that you like actually match with where you can make money, where you can produce, well, that's a really good thing. And you'll find there's a, there's a book by Cal Newport called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And Cal talks about the idea of finding something you're good at and getting better and better and better at it until you're, it's effortless. And then when it's effortless, you can become world-class at that thing, and you're going to find you're pretty darn passionate about something you're world-class at, right? But I think to say I need to be passionate about something before I can decide to do it is putting the cart before the horse, man. So you need to actually work at things, do things, try things, and be willing to work hard. And trust me, you'll find passion somewhere. So one of the things that always resonated with me, Mike Rowe said, follow the opportunity and bring your passion with you. And the show that he created, Dirty Jobs, all the different things that he did, having conversations with somebody who started a garbage truck company for for example and and recognizing that you know 
hauling off trash is not something that somebody was passionate about, but when doing it and then creating a business and a team and a culture around it, it became that person's purpose and passion. And so that's something that's, that's incredible. And, and, and it's a little bit misleading when you hear all of these people say, follow your passion, follow your passion. I'd always argue, follow the opportunity, kind of like mm-hmm. what you just said, like what Mike talks about. And so that that's interesting. When did you come to that realization? Um, I think if you look at it, for me, I absolutely hated sales and absolutely hated the idea of selling things. Um, I'm really good at sales and really good at selling things now. Let me tell you, man, I enjoy it. But you have to kind of be willing to work through that process, right? Like, I think for me, though, when I actually realized it is I was in a really good shortstop in, in all through grammar school and high school and everything like that. And I had an experience um, in high school where the coach's son was also a shortstop and he was terrible, but he's the coach's son. So what does that mean? He plays shortstop and he hits leadoff and the best shortstop on the team plays left bench. So what did I do? I said, okay, our center fielder is kind of terrible and he's not anybody's kid. So I'm going to learn how to play center field better than anybody on the team. I spent three, four hours every night. I had my dad hitting pop-ups to me and I became the best center fielder in that league. But I found the opportunity. I went out and seized it and I became better at it. So I think to me, that's where I really saw that is I love baseball. I love that position, but if I want to play baseball, I got to learn a different position to become the best at it. So to me, I think that's where I really learned it. And I've had to kind of take that same viewpoint, you know, in different areas of my life and see where I can do that. But I think that was the first time when I actually learned that. It highlights the importance of our ability to adapt, to be able to create that alignment and and pursue something that we want. But sometimes you have to make a little bit of a tangent over here off to the side while still following the same path, you were still playing baseball, just a different position. Mm-hmm. And I think that ego contributes to some people not being willing to step out and do that thing. Like I can envision a different version of Jeremy might have said, hey, screw this. I'm a better shortstop and then created all sort of a ruckus and all sorts of issues trying to prove that you were the best shortstop instead of adapting to the environment so that you can still be successful and do what you wanted to do, which mm-hmm. was play baseball. Well, and this goes back to what we've been talking about a couple times through this conversation, man. Like don't create antagonism because I'll tell you what, if I go and piss that coach off, I'm not playing no matter how good I am. You know what I mean? And I think that's what you have to think about. Like you have to create a situation where we can still collaborate here and we can still make this work. And you can look at that in any area of your life, right? Like if you say, okay, this isn't working like this and I'm going to just go piss somebody off. Well, you're never going to fix that. You have to look at, you have to be able to continue a working relationship and you have to be able to continue to collaborate with people. So you have to, you have to look at that. You can't just get to a point in your life where you just say, screw it. I'm just going to like, you know, burn this thing down. You got to figure out how can I make this work and how can I not antagonize? You know, we've kind of danced around this topic a little bit, just lightly touching on it, but it's the haters. We're all going to have haters in our lives. And sometimes we actually contribute to having those haters in our lives. But other times we're just on our mission, on our purpose. And inevitably along the way, you're going to have haters. People are going to try to cut you down, beat you down. A lot of times, especially as you become more and more in the public eye, 
you've never even met these people. They just have some sort of digital perception of who you are, and then they start trying to tear you down. Have you experienced that? You should see my YouTube comments, man. It's fun. <laughs> like, like I, I seriously wonder what people do when they're faceless on the internet to read some of the things people say to me. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a barometer of success, right? It's a barometer of how well you're doing. And I think that's how you have to look at it because I know early on it really upset me and I really took it personally. But at the same time, like you said, like for a lot of these people, especially online, you're not going to know them. <laughs> but you're relevant enough that you're pissing them off. So at this, you have to look at it that way. It's a barometer of success. The more people know about you, hopefully 80% are going to like you, 20% aren't, and that's fine. But you have to continue to get out there and continue to put yourself out there, and you're going to get some negativity, and you have to look at it for what it is. Be like, huh, I'm doing pretty well. There's um, a really great video. It's, it's pretty short. It's a Jocko Willink video, and he talks about the idea. Joe Rogan was talking about it recently, and I'm trying to remember – what the phrase is he uses, but it's anyways, it's something to the effect of, well, that's good because he looks at all these different situations. It's like, well, well, that's good. You know, what can I do with that thing? Because I think too often we put so much negative attention on something rather than saying, okay, well, that's, that's a barometer of success. If that is occurring, that means I'm going in the right direction, right? I'm getting pushback. I'm getting uh, resistance. If you're getting no resistance, you know, you're probably not doing the right thing, man. You're probably not playing a big enough game. And to me, resistance is a barometer you're going the right direction. I think it's important to stay true to who we are in that process. And I'm at a point where I've had a couple of haters come out um, leaving comments on my, my YouTube videos and things like that. And the first one that stung me, and I'll always remember this, but somebody was making fun of my, my Wolfhead logo. And I, it's a pretty cool wolf head, man. I appreciate that. Thank they you. They have a I, lack of taste. Exactly. That was where my head went. But it it meant. I mean, this wolf means a lot to me. We won't get into that right now. But this the logo. I I I love it. And he was talking all sorts of trash, talking about well, you look like a gaming nerd or da da da. da. I was like, okay, cool. And I actually responded back to him saying, hey, I appreciate the feedback. This actually means a lot to me. So I'm gonna go ahead and keep it up. And they actually responded back saying, you know what? I've looked through some more of your content. I respect what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And so what's interesting about that is that when somebody comes at us with that negativity or that anger or hate or frustration or whatnot, if you can flip the switch mentally and think about it from a place of empathy of, man, they must be in a dark place to be attacking some stranger on the internet and just be mm -hmm. cordial and polite and respond back to them. And you might actually change their mind or perspective, or you might not. Either way, that's fine. It's just important to understand, to your point, is that as we follow our mission and purpose in life, we're going to ruffle some feathers along the way. And that means that you're doing a good thing. Just staying true to yourself, that's what's most important. All right, so this is the, the least personal development thing I'm gonna say, but um, when my, my, my wife and I often have conversations about this stuff and we call people like that diarrhea people because <laughs> there is no way you're that miserable unless you have chronic diarrhea every single day of your life. So, so, so I always think about that. And I'm like, oh, man, that poor person. They spend so much time in the bathroom whenever I see somebody that miserable. But at the same time, like, 
we saw some like massive growth on YouTube in the last like 60 days. Um, we finally learned how to optimize a video, which I think I would have learned how to do oh. six years ago. But anyway, so we've started seeing now like we get those negative comments. But I said to my wife, you know, like, you know how I know I've, I've you know, I'm finally starting to make it. And she's like, well, how? I'm like, I don't have to say anything to the haters now. Because now the people that actually really like my content are out there saying something to them for me. I'm like, that's really cool. That's when you know you've made it. So to me, it's you keep pushing, man. You keep pushing, and eventually that pushback turns into admiration. And when once you start to see that admiration, you know you're starting to make it. Yeah, man, that's such a good point. Uh, one day I hope to find that trick on YouTube. I've had, I've had a few good... I'll, I'll be very happy to share it with you after this conversation. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Let's, let's chat, cut it up afterwards. Okay. All right. So... We've also talked a little bit about ego. How do you keep your ego in check as you have become more and more in the public eye? Hmm. That's really hard. It, it is hard because I think that sometimes you, you, you know what you want out of life. You know what you're good at. And I think you have to, you have to get better at understanding that other people and their needs exist. So I wish I could say I had a better way to check this, but I think, frankly, it's keeping people around me that I know want the best for me, but are willing to say the hard things to me. You know, like I have two people that I do talk to on a weekly basis, um, one of them being my wife, somebody else being, you know, more of a business mentor. And I'll tell you, that business mentor, man, can be brutal on telling me what I need to hear when I need to hear it because... Listen, man, we can all be prima donnas at some point. You have to have somebody that's close to you that wants the best for you, that sees where you're going and supports that trajectory, but is willing to say the hard thing to you to keep it in check. Because I think we're, we're, we're all pretty bad at doing it ourselves. You know, I think it's when, when you're trying to do big things and you're trying to get out there, it's, you're oftentimes blind to that. But you need somebody that is coming in from a perspective where they want to see you succeed, not to keep you small, but they can say those things to you that need to be said. I've seen some executives in various companies that I've worked with over the years that as the business grows, as they achieve higher levels of success, they end up kind of surrounding themselves with, we'll say, yes, men. I'm sure you've heard that, that phrase before. And whenever I think about this and the teams that I've led over the years, I place such a tremendous amount of value on feedback that I receive from from my peers, obviously from above business mentors, but then also people below me on my team. And when those individuals are willing to say the hard things, not being afraid of upsetting me, but knowing it's what I need to hear, I value that more than you can even imagine. And it sounds like you're in a, in a similar situation where you're at a point in your life, in your business and career, where you actually value that feedback. And not all leaders are that way. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, those people that surround themselves with yes men, if somebody shares some feedback that they don't like, they'll have a tendency to just kind of push them away. And I think there has to be a balance there because yes, you're going to have the haters. They're going to share things that you aren't going to like, but also if you have somebody that's close to you, that's been around for a long period of time that respects you, values you and wants you and the team and the company to be successful. And they're sharing something with you intentionally to help you be better. 
you have to have an element of self-awareness to know that this is not Jeremy trying to cut Sean down. This is Jeremy trying to genuinely help Sean see something that maybe he's not seeing right now. Well, and I think that's a, the, the last part of that is the most important part, because I think when you look at it, there's people that will smile to your face while they're putting a knife in your back. And that is the single most dangerous type of person out there. You know, it's covertly hostile, right? You know, they're smiling to your face, but they're doing things to see you fail. And that's why when you get that feedback, you have to look at it as, does this feedback make me smaller and make me feel worse about myself? Or is this feedback something I can use to constructively change what I'm doing, grow and do better, right? Oftentimes as well is what I'll find when I'm getting criticism, I'd say, well, great then how would you do it better or what would you do about it? And if you find that those people are not willing to give you a solution, they just want to criticize, that is someone that your alarm bell should be going off with because that intention is to keep you smaller, not to help you grow. So to me, you really have to be very astute when you're getting criticism, where it comes from and how it's delivered because that is the single indicator that will change your success and failure. Because I will tell you right now, if you have somebody next to you that will smile to your face while they're putting a knife in your back, that will take you down. And you don't even recognize that at first. In hindsight, it's always twenty twenty, but you don't because it's 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 so much in the way they communicate. Like, oh, you know, Sean, you shouldn't run that race because you know I know you're really fast and everything, but you know, think about if you hurt yourself, what would happen to your like? It's it's the way they 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 take they take the communication and twist it a little bit and you look at it and you're like well it's ostensibly it looks like they care about me but they actually don't right they're putting this thing of what could happen to me if i fail rather than saying okay this is i can see that would be difficult i would you know consume this content read this prepare with this and i think you're gonna have a better outcome but if they're telling me why i shouldn't do something and that's keeping me smaller that's a really dangerous thing man it is so let's talk a little bit about your business Whenever yeah. you started it, did you start it right when the pandemic hit or right before? Talk me through that a little bit. So we started our current company in 2015. And at that point in time, we had a third business partner. The only the, the two main partners now are my wife and myself, who I really don't think I'd go into business with anybody other than my wife at this point in life, because we actually get along really well. And when, when it comes to work, besides outside of work. But we had a third partner that things just really did not work out. And we ended up moving on from that company. It was called Get Featured Media. And we ended up keeping all the employees and I had to figure out like how to pay them for a few months while I ended up trying to keep the business going. And that became Command Your Brand. So we had a good sized business. We had five team members when the, when the pandemic hit. We were doing pretty well revenue wise. And then what we actually ended up doing, because we've always been a virtual company, is I said, well, this is actually an opportunity now. All these people that I couldn't hire before are now out of work. So what we did is we made our training better, made our processes better, um, helped uh, put down what our real hiring process is. We made a better hiring process than we had before. And we went from five people to 17 people. And that helped us be in a really good position to you know, produce and do well and, and do whatever it may be because people became available that I couldn't have before. And I think what happens when something like that happens, you know, like a, whether it be a pandemic or the economy, the first idea of most people is to contract is to get smaller when i'm looking at okay so how within this can i get bigger right like i have a lot of admiration for even some restaurants during that time period that restaurants got hit the hardest they said okay i'm going to start a i'm going to start a delivery food business and there were a lot of 
There's a couple businesses by me now, that's all they do, and they make more money than they made before. So I think you have to look at this and say, in this situation, how can I expand rather than contract? And I know for some companies that was harder than others, but for me, that was a real opportunity there, man. Yeah, I, I, I respect the hell out of you guys for, for doing what you did during that downturn because we saw what happened. All these businesses that ended up closing their doors, it was either the business dies or you adapt, weather the storm, and come out even stronger. And I've worked in oil and gas for the majority of my career or a large portion of my career. And obviously there's booms and busts in, in oil and gas. And sure. one of the things that I've come to recognize is how valuable it is to be able to come to an optimistic outlook during the bottom of the trough, during that bust, when all things look bleak and dark. And I've found success in being able to use that downtime to improve processes, to mm -hmm. make changes to the business. All the things that we couldn't do because the business was just frantic, running around like a beehive, we couldn't implement change or streamline processes. Now, all that activity has kind of died down and people are kind of twiddling their thumbs, sitting around like, hey, what do we do? What do we focus on? people are more likely to focus on initiatives where they can improve processes, where they can streamline processes or do things better or document processes. So using that downtime to set your team on a mission, on a purpose, so that they can come together, accomplish whatever needs to be accomplished and be primed and prepared for things to come back up out mm -hmm. of the downturn. And that's something that I think is a, a requirement as an entrepreneur to be able to have that skill set or business leader to make sure that you can weather this storm or your business just dies away into nothingness. Well, and you have to look at it because preparation is so important, right? It's I, There's a quote, and I, I really don't remember who said it, but the idea makes sense. And it's, I will prepare and my time will come. And you have to look at it. You always need to be preparing because you never know when that shot could come for you. And you have to be ready for when it's going to come. And, you know, downtimes, frankly, are some of the best times to do it. Like, get your processes in shape. Get all the things you need to, need to be in. Hire the right people. Prepare to deliver because you need to be ready for delivery to come. I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Aside from those processes that you guys improved and you likely honing your craft on the sales side of things, was there any? other lessons that you learned through the pandemic that helped your organization that can help other entrepreneurs that might be listening? Get out of your employees' ways. Because I will tell you right now, I was a serial bypasser. Like, oh, I can do that better myself, or I can do it faster myself, or I can handle that quicker myself. And here's what's going to happen, man. You're going to keep your organization small. So when you find you need to bypass, you need to take a look at it and say, is it because that thing isn't in our training documents or isn't documented or isn't there for someone else to know how to do it? Or do I just need to chill out? And when I found in a lot of situations that thing I wanted to bypass and do wasn't documented. You know, there wasn't a screen recording video. There wasn't a, a write-up document on how to do it. And frankly, those processes in, in documenting are even easier now. Um, there's an app that we use called... Um, GPT for work. It's a chat GPT plugin for Google Docs and for Google Sheets. 
And what we can actually do is take the transcript of a full training, put it in, in a uh, GPT for work document, and say, now put this into a repeatable process and write up in a Google Doc for me that I can actually I can actually repeat and use. So we figured out how to make our processes better. And if some, if I really feel the need to bypass, I need to take a look at it and say, is it because I need to chill out or is it because that thing isn't documented and it forced us to make better processes? So this isn't something that I was intending on us discussing, but let's talk a little bit about generative AI. Whenever yeah. you start talking about chat GPT, I mean, that's all the rage since, well, almost a year now since it's come out. Sure. And it seems we've seen this Explosion. I think it's become the new crypto in a lot of ways too, yeah. though. So you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that I, just last week I was speaking at a, on, on a panel and we were talking about generative AI and what that does in terms of Im impacting the employee population. There is a subset of employee populations that is starting to get a little bit nervous, a little bit worried. Is this going to replace my job? There's others that are just kind of ignoring it, pretending it doesn't exist. And there's others that are that are learning and understanding the value that a tool like that can create in almost not quite augmenting your team or staff, but accelerating the output and productivity of the people on your team and staff. And so I love that you're tapping into that. Are there any other tools that you've come to see value in that have helped your organization that you think others might need to be exploring? Well, I want to say first and foremost about what you're talking about, because that's a really good point. I think you have to look at this as, you know, closer to what we saw with the Industrial Revolution. You know, there are going to be some lower level jobs that are replaced. That's just how it is. But at the same time, new lines of work will be created because of this for those people to do, right? So that there's always going to be new things to do. So I, 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 I don't want people to freak out about that. And I think at the same time, you can't be lazy and implement these things. This is going to take people that are good at things and make them better or make them world-class because they figure out how to implement the right way. So for me, we're looking at, a lot of redundant things and figuring out how to, how to do that. You know, we're using, um, I, I find that chat GPT itself is limited, but we use actually, um, as I was talking about the GPT for work plugin, which connects to Google docs and Google sheets. So what we can have it then do is like, I can have it look at a, a 25 page, uh, transcript from a podcast episode and help me make an outline for a blog post that I want to write about that. So we're using it to do things like that that would have taken us hours to bring it down and then edit those things and do more with it. So that's really what we're looking at is what are these large tasks of collating data that we can use to then do better with it. Like, you know, give me five different options for a headline for this article. Here's the article. Here's what I want to do with it. And then I can take a look at that and say, great, I like this one. So now give me two different variations of this headline because what, what that can do is it doesn't put your think on it. It looks at all the variations out there and says, okay, well, these are the two I'd recommend based on that. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at how can I maximize my computing power to get the best outputs at this point, really in a, just a text format. We're not really doing much with anything outside of text, but it's helped us to speed up a lot of processes, and that's what we're looking at. Well, you just touched on something that I also want to reiterate is speeding up processes or removing friction in your business because speed is king quite frankly yes. and whenever i think about some of the other ai tools that are out there and i see a tremendous opportunity and amount of value in specific use case scenarios where top level executives can quickly access data that they might not otherwise be able to access as fast and at 
as an example, if you have some sort of mobile app and, and your technology team has been able to layer open AI over the top of all your Azure data in your environment and you are a CEO or CFO and you're having a conversation with some investors and they start asking you questions about what's going on with the compression of your, your margin over the last two quarters. Now, as an executive, you probably should know, but if not, being able to pull out your cell phone type in the question or ask the question and then immediately get a response of, okay, well, we're seeing this compression on our margin because of this, this, and this. These are likely the contributing factors. And it makes it easy for you to be able to have that conversation and garner more insights and knowledge into your organization without having to pick up the phone. Hey, Jeremy, can you run this report? Can you figure out what's going on so that I can answer this question for this investor? Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also like, like I said, getting smart in the way you use it. So we actually, one of the biggest leaps forward we had in our, in our company marketing, um, about four months ago, we've, as long as we've been in existence, we've never had a brand standards manual. So I sat down with chat GPT and I said, okay, if I was going to write a brand standards manual, what are the, the several things that this manual should contain? And it listed them out for me. I said, okay, okay, great. Let's start with brand voice. And let's work that out. So you have to kind of work through these different things. And we created a 65-page brand standards manual that is the closest thing I've ever had to what my company stands for, what it means, and what I want people doing. But it's not just like I said, hey, spit out a brand standards manual. I worked through a process of getting closer to what I wanted. When I saw things I didn't like, I took those out. But it's working it through till you get the actual product you want. It's... As I'm flashing back to my first interactions with ChatGPT last year, it was borderline scary how intuitive that tool could be. And there were times when it would completely miss the mark, but you could go in, ask a very generic question or prompt, and come back with some eerily specific information that was applicable to you and what you were trying to look at or, or figure out. I think that's impressive. We're just going to see a rapid acceleration of more and more functionality like that. As humans, the important piece is for us to understand and be intentional about how we use these tools. Because as you start to use them more, I have no doubt you've seen this on LinkedIn or other social platforms, people that just copy paste straight from ChatGPT into their post. And it is blatantly obvious. Okay. All right. Can you do a And you read something? it and you're like, no human being speaks like that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So now, Sean, we're going to go into an enlightening story about that. It was like, <laughs> what? Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. And here's the thing. I was guilty of it at first. And then I started it. It only took like two posts. I was like, okay, this is not me. This is not how I communicate. And so I would use it as some sort of a tool to get ideas and thoughts and then kind of curate it a little bit more so that it was more tailored to my linguistic style and what I was talking about and just kind of how my messaging comes across. But it's, it's, being intentional about learning how to use those tools to improve your business or whatever project you're working on. Yeah, and because there was, uh, I don't know if you heard about this, there was a lawyer that got disbarred because they tried to use ChatGPT to cite case law for them to, to actually put together defense. And it turned out, you know, if, if it doesn't actually know the correct answer, it will just make it up. 
So the judge was like, none of these cases you're citing exist. They've never happened before. So the, the, the lawyer had to admit they used chat GPT and actually got disbarred. Oh, wow. So it's, you can use, smart people can use it to be better, but if stupidly applied, you're still going to get the same output, man. Well, I think that's with a lot of things in life. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's see. What is, what is next for you, Jeremy? Oh, so I've been concentrating more on like, you know, video content. We've been really working on, you know, growing YouTube, growing Rumble. Um, I'm on a few other platforms as well, Odyssey and, and BitChute and things like that, because you can't 100% trust YouTube. They don't always mm -hmm. like everything I say. Um, but in the last 90 days, we've went from 9,000 followers on YouTube to almost about 22,000. So we've been we've been growing pretty quickly over there. And that's really what I'm concentrating on, man. We're trying to do the, the, the next thing we're adding is, a, is, you know, more media. We added a full... Um, podcast production wing to our company in the last three months. So we're, that's really what we're concentrating on is actually creating media rather than just booking our clients on it at this point. Yeah. I think whenever you're able to make that shift from consumer to producer, things start to really open up for you. No, hundred percent. Because at the same time, like if you have, if, if we're placing clients on podcasts, you're also helping the podcast space get a little bit better. You're also making it better for what you do on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, really is. What is one of the biggest things that you have learned through your journey in podcasting? The value in learning to be a good interviewer. Because and and what I say is I actually don't listen to other podcasters for this. I look at people that have been in media for a long time that I admire. Like I watched a lot of like Larry King or, or Oprah or Cal Fussman. And you look and you say, What do these people do? And you learn it's a few things like number one they'll have one or two pre-written questions that better for that conversation but it's just used to, to kind of tease the conversation into being able to ask a good follow-up question so it's really learning how to be a good interviewer and the things a good interviewer does and frankly there's there's no substitute for doing hundreds of interviews to getting good at being an interviewer and for me I look at where I am now versus almost nine years ago, and I, I kind of cringe if I look at those early episodes. But it, at the same time, man, everybody's got to start somewhere, and you got to be willing to build up some skills. But if you can get to become a good interviewer, it's going to create so much of a better experience for people trying to listen to your content. So I've I can echo that sentiment, and I'm 140 something episodes in at this point in time. I've been doing it for two and a half years. One of the things that I have come to realize is how it has helped me become a better conversationalist. And whenever I go back and look at my first few episodes, I definitely cringe thinking, oh God. And to be fair, I was a typical introverted IT nerd, didn't really know how to have a conversation. I still aspire to become even better. And if I'm being honest, I was a little bit nervous having you come on the show, but truly excited about the energy that you bring. And it is something that I'm continuing to practice, continuing to hone my craft on. And I didn't anticipate that. When I started the show, the intent was really to get a little bit more comfortable speaking behind a microphone, behind a camera, and then to share some of the knowledge that I had learned over the years. And it wasn't until probably a year and a half, two years in, that I started to recognize the skills that I was building just by getting the reps in. Mm -hmm. And that applies to all aspects of life. We just have to be willing to step out and be uncomfortable for a little while and see it through until we become great at it. Sean, I think that 
is the single best point that's been made in this entire conversation. It re- because that's what it comes down to, man. Like I was a competitive powerlifter in my twenties and in my thirties, you know, I'm really just kind of keeping in shape and, and keeping up with my kids. I think that's about what matters. But, but at 25, I'm, I'm five foot seven. I was 215 pounds. I was benching 455, squatting 705 and deadlifting 635. And people are always like, oh my gosh, how do you push weights like that? Well, number one, I, I did it clean. It was just with diet and, and, and the right, you know, taking care of myself. But number two, linear progression. Since I was 17 years old, if I could get two and a half or five pounds stronger every week to two weeks and do that for years, that's how you get stronger, man. It is not like, you know, you take the right supplement or you get on the right routine or, you know, this time I did keto or whatever it may be. Linear progression, man. If you can get five pounds stronger every week or two weeks or three weeks, whatever that metric is for you, and you take that and you do it over years, that's how you get there. You know, and it's, it goes right in line with what you just said. Yeah, absolutely does. I'm sure you uh, followed uh, Louis Simmons. No. Really? No. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I'll have to send you. There's a great documentary on Netflix about him. Um, yeah, I'll send you some info on that. Okay. We're closing in on the hour. Jeremy, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I had no clue that you were as strong as you just cited, so that's pretty damn impressive. We're going to have to have another it's Mighty Mouse back in the day, man. <laughs> no, exactly. So I didn't get quite to those levels, but uh, – I didn't get close to those levels, but I yeah, but I'm, be... I'm dude. I'm also five foot six on a good five foot six or five foot seven on a good day. So it's like okay. I don't have very far of a distance to move to be very strong. Okay. <laughs> so my excuse is I'm six one. So that's okay, well, there you I'll, go. I'll stick with that. I've got long levers hey, that I've got to move. <laughs> I pity you, tall guys, for squatting, man. It is really hard for a tall guy to squat. <laughs> yeah, but I've got huge jumps. My vertical jump okay. was 55 inches until I broke my ankle a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, but. Yeah, that was a, a whole thing. Jeremy, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. How do people contact you? Um, they can head over to jeremyryanslate.com if they're interested in the brand side of things. If they want to check out the company side of things, I put together a really great resource for them on how they can locate the right podcast, get themselves booked on them, and do, and do some basic PR actions. That's over at crushitonpodcast.com. All right, perfect. Thank you again, Jeremy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have for the show today. We will have all of Jeremy's contact information in the show notes down below, and y'all have a good one.